0: Welcome to Eclipse podcast series about biodiversity and ecosystem services. I'm Eva Banshagi, environmental journalist. In this episode, we are talking about a handbook made for nature-based solutions practitioners. The handbook aims to provide decision makers with a comprehensive nature-based solutions impact assessment framework. It would like to serve people who work on implementing nature-based solutions, project managers, community leaders, members of city councils, and not just experts, but everybody who is involved in the co-creation or the co-implementation of such projects. The handbook entitled Evaluating the Impact of Nature-Based Solutions, a Handbook for Practitioners was published by the European Commission Directorate General for Research and Innovation and was a huge effort of more than 180 scientists across Europe and beyond. The Handbook builds upon Eclipse Expert Working Group Impact Evaluation Framework. In this podcast, I'm talking with two researchers who are very passionate about nature-based solutions. They are the editors of the Handbook. And we will use a lot the short version of nature-based solutions, which is NBS. My guests are Dr. Adina Dumitru, psychologist, senior researcher at the University of A Coruña, Spain, and director of the Specialization Campus in Sustainability Research, and Dr. Laura Wendling, environmental scientist, leader of the Nature-Based Solutions research team at the Technical Research Center of Finland. Let's imagine that a mayor of a village or the chief landscape architect of a city, opens this book because they are planning a nature-based solution. How can they use it? Adina? I think the first thing they they
1: can do is look at the first chapters of the handbook uh, so that they can design a proper process of deciding of how their monitoring and evaluation plan is going to be. That sometimes needs that they mobilize a team around them because we need different types of expertise when we decide on this evaluation plan. And we also recommend in the handbook that that is done from the beginning of the process of co-creation of a nature-based solution. Because sometimes what we see is that people think about evaluation at the end, and that's not the right moment to think about it. We should start with thinking, when I'm imagining a project that wants to fulfill particular objectives i can already start thinking about how would i then monitor and evaluate the types of outcomes that i want to get through this process so in that sense we recommend they first to read the recommendations so we have a few chapters on those principles and recommendations of how to design the process the handbook is actually quite hands on on how that process can be then set in place so that it ends up being a monitoring and evaluation plan. Uh, It starts with how to organise that process and then it goes to specific indicators that we would choose based on the objectives we have set for our projects and the kinds of outcomes we want to obtain for the NBS project.
2: Laura? The only thing I would add there is that if you take a step back and say the chief planner for a town or something, I think that the introduction to the handbook does a really nice job of putting NBS in context. So someone may have the idea that a nature-based solution is is a really good idea, but when you start reading the handbook, you realize that whilst a nature-based solution can be perfect to address this one problem that we've identified, say urban heating or flooding, you know, there are so many additional co-benefits and what we've just tried to describe there, you know, frame NBS in the context of where they fit within European policy initiatives and how NBS relate to preceding concepts like ecosystem-based adaptation or ecosystem-based disaster risk reduction, things like that. So, I think that that first chapter is really key to kind of set the stage and help people understand why it is important to know all the different co-benefits that can be achieved and then monitor those to see what what is the full impact of what we're doing.
0: You mentioned that you need to start the evaluation at the beginning, but I think it's worse to look at this handbook even if you don't actually plan any MBS implementation. Because it can be inspiring uh, due to the examples you present in the handbook. I mean, inspiring to give yourself up to MBS.
2: That's absolutely true. I mean, the reason that we wanted to include so many different case studies is to inspire people so they can see that there is no one size fits all solution and that um, everybody has different objectives. And so each of the NBS that are featured in the handbook are are very unique in terms of the location, the size, the physical scale, and then exactly which sorts of challenges they're addressing. And so I think that um, reading about what's been done can absolutely be inspiring. You can see what people have achieved or say, oh, you know, I hadn't even thought to measure that or that there would be any impact on that particular thing.
0: Can you please say an example which shows that not any aspects are obvious.
2: From my perspective, um, I'm more of a like a biophysical scientist. So to me, the things that are less evident, you know, if if we're implementing nature-based solutions to combat the impacts of climate change. So say we need to do something about flooding. What's really interesting is when we start to look at the different benefits we can gain, a lot of these are social and not really related to flooding at all, but it's the process of creating this NBS together, members of the community coming together to design something and implement it together. And I think a, a lot of the data collection for impact assessment can involve citizens or school children, you know. And so we start to see this uh, sense of cohesion, you know, this feeling of belonging, you know, things that are less obvious when you're implementing a flood control measure, essentially.
0: Adina, would you like to add something here because you are coming from social sciences?
2: Yeah, and for
1: that reason, for me, the other ones are obvious. (laughs) So, so for example, in in the case of, um, I was thinking now of a solution where you, for example, redesign public space to include a lot of more green spaces and take cars out, for example. There are some initiatives to reduce pollution, but also to sometimes reduce just the use of public space for mobility and for parking instead of for other uses. And so we install all all these green spaces where we allow people to spend nice time, you know, to do sports and do other things. So, those can be pretty obvious. But for example, when we start, for example, also seeing an increase in attachment to place, if people are involved, if if communities Mm -hmm. are involved in this, they start loving their neighborhood more. So, that actually has an impact on the kinds of uh, relationships that are being established. Families reduce their expenses, for example, in parties for children, because they start using public space to organize parties for their children and for birthdays and so on. And within that process, Both children and parents start creating new relations in the neighborhood, new relationships, but also start reducing their expense on these kinds of things. And also, that we see, for example, in those cases, an increase in the expense uh, in local shops, right? So we see an increase in economic opportunities for the neighborhood that before did not exist when we use this space, for example, only for driving and, you know, parking our cars.
0: Laura, you told that every case was unique, but... Can a template or a kind of recipe be used to each NBS
2: project? We had, I think, a total of 427 different indicators of impact across 12 different societal challenge areas. And what we tried to do was select a few that we thought were probably the most widely applicable and would give important information in almost every case. We name these our recommended indicators, but it doesn't mean that those are any more important. We think these are kind of universal, and then we have a whole suite of additional indicators that are probably more specific or, I guess, less applicable to, say, every situation. But I think that short list of recommended indicators at least gives a very good idea of What are some of the main things in this societal challenge area that we might want to address? And when I say societal challenge area, I mean, these are like big global challenges, things like climate resilience or resistance to natural, natural hazards, human health and well-being or new economic opportunities and green jobs. But looking through that list, I think I think anyone starting out is going to know pretty quickly, say this one isn't applicable to my situation, they really fit our question. But I think before we could even talk about indicator selection, we need to think about the theory of change that's developed. Maybe Adina you could talk a little bit about that theory of change.
1: Yeah. So the first thing we recommend is that it's quite complex process, but still that can be broken down in different steps of defining your theory of change where The project manager together with the team we can sit down and think first what are our objectives for this particular project right what do we want to achieve we can also identify local needs which needs are we responding to which social groups are present in this particular neighborhood or in this particular location that we are addressing and need to involve and we can even enlarge this process to then include some of the representatives of these groups to come to the table of deciding this theory of change, so to co-create the theory of change with us. And we actually recommend that as quite a good approach because there's particular knowledge that these social groups have about the local needs and what works and what doesn't for particular groups like the uh, representatives of youth have a different perspective than the elderly of what they need in a neighborhood. For example, women have a different perspective of what they need than men. So once we have brought all these different stakeholders to the table and we can reflect on the local context needs and uh, then we can establish the relationship between how the project will respond to these needs to fulfill the strategic objectives we have been identifying. And we recommend there that then We are very specific about, okay, I want to achieve these objectives, and what are the pathways through which you think those objectives are going to be achieved? What are the assumptions that you formulate? For example, if you decide to create a local park because you think this will... Respond to a need in the neighbourhood for more exposure to green spaces and more exercise. It will have health effects. Okay, so we have this idea that we have this park and we want to achieve these objectives of increased health and well-being. How do we think that will happen? Do we think that will happen through more exercise? Do we think that by default, just by having the park, everyone will go there and will we'll engage in more exercise? So then we get to a more refined analysis of actually this does not apply to all social groups, maybe. Maybe if we do not create particular spaces within this park for activities that are favored by youth, they will not go to this park to do, to exercise, right? Or the elderly, or if we do not create spaces that are safe for women, women will not go to this park to actually uh, engage in exercise, right? So then we, we get to these questions of how do we think this nature-based solution is actually going to fulfill those objectives? And we can actually map that very clearly, right? And once we have that map, we say that then the evaluation question is very easy to formulate, right? Because if we have that map very clearly designed, we can say, okay, so now my evaluation question, is this green space actually appropriate for different social groups to engage in exercise? That's one question. Is this particular space appropriate for different social groups to come together and establish better relationships? are immigrant groups welcome, for example, within this particular neighborhood? And do they have opportunities to relate to other groups? So once we have those questions, and they don't have to be that many, right? We can list those questions. And based on those questions, the indicator selection becomes very easy. So then I need an indicator for the level of physical activity in the park for different social groups. I need an indicator for level of perceived safety is this space safe enough for different social groups and i can think you know these are my main objectives but i also want with this park to reduce heat in the city so then i can have indicators that are measuring uh heat reduction in a particular area do i want this park to also contribute to reduce air pollution so to have cleaner air and i can include indicators of how this park actually absorbs some of the pollution around and is air better in this area and in the surrounding areas for example with this in mind i can choose my indicators there is another step then that i have to decide okay then i can look at the methods for these indicators once we have decided our subset of indicators we can then go and find out which data we have available already that we could use to measure those indicators once we find out which data we have available we also find out what are the gaps in data what do we miss that we need to collect at this point to be able to measure those indicators and assess those impacts. Um, And when we do that, uh, then we need to be sure that we differentiate between what we call baseline data. So those the information about how the situation is before we implement the project on those dimensions that we found is very important, right? Like for example, social capital or level of physical activity or perceived safety. And from that, we can then decide, Okay, I need additional baseline data because I'm missing data that could tell me how the situation is at this present moment that will help me do the diagnosis.
0: This handbook is very handy as you give tools, indicators, tables, uh, all sorts of things that can be practically used. And I feel that it makes the users work on and develop MBS projects more deeply so it can lead us to better mbs implementations. Laura,
2: I think absolutely that's our hope is that the handbook will help to remove some of the barriers either real or perceived in the implementation of mbs actions by providing this this guidance. So there's not just a series of steps to follow, there's the theoretical basis is explained. You know, why do we do it this way? Not just do it this way, but we do it this way because this is a benefit that's gained from following these particular steps. And one of the purposes of creating a suite of indicators that we can all use was to select the same metrics, the same types of measurement. So we collect the same type of data at the same frequency, you know, using the same units of measure, so that then we can compare and we can see, you know, what is the difference between, say, a green roof in Paris? that's 50 square meters and a green wall in Berlin that's you know 500 square meters of you know facade do we get the same sort of benefit you know and is the difference due to size or is it due to location you know we can start to really tease apart some of these important questions and it makes the the evidence base less anecdotal in nature and and much more robust Um, I think that that's going to really drive forward MBS and you know, help us to mainstream the concept, um, ensure that it's not just um, something that comes and goes in popularity, but if we're actually able to quantify these benefits and to create an evidence base that people can refer to to see what has worked well elsewhere and then why might that work or not work in my situation, uh, that's really going to provide the the knowledge that we need
0: maybe the importance of evaluation is the clearest when an mbs is used to protect people from natural disasters so if you would like to protect the city from floods or landslides but can you make sure that with a good evaluation people will be protected
2: yeah of course we can and that was one of the aspects of the different indicators that we selected so we have those that you measure during the process, you know, using sensors or surveys, you know, either collecting quantitative or qualitative data. But we also have models. So we've developed indicators that are based on modeling techniques. So you can model your design and say, I know that this is how much precipitation we might get in a one in 500 year event. And now when we have that sort of rain event, we see very extensive flooding, loss of lives, you know, damage to critical infrastructure. So if we place, you know, particular NBS designed in a particular way in this location, what could happen? So modeling allows us to determine whether the NBS that we've designed is going to be sufficient to address the issue that we've identified.
0: The handbook is already used by practitioners. At Glasgow City Council, there's a lady a spatial planning manager who is passionate about nature-based solutions. Gillian Dick works within the Development Plan Group, and she does indeed use the MBS handbook we are talking about.
3: When I talk to people over the last few years, I've talked about a nature-based solution, meaning that you do no harm to community, whether that's humans or habitat, animals, plants. You do no harm to health and well-being, whether that's humans or animals and plants or the environment you're in you do no harm to the economy I've increasingly said that's about the green economy but it's about the whole economy you do no harm to environment and you do no harm to biodiversity all at the same time and a lot of moves that people make they make a move for an economic reason or they might make it for a health reason if you're lucky but they, everything else is an add-on. And actually, everything we do should be a nature-based solution. So in the last year, we have started talking in Glasgow about it being a place-based approach, using nature-based solutions to create a climate-adaptive city. So it's trying to get people to think, if I make this move, rather than mitigating against the damage I do to the environment or the people or the community or anything else because I'm going for an economic return, have a look at all of it at the same time. It's not saying stand still and tick a box, but it is saying think about how you can improve all of these things with the move. So if the move you're going to make, whether it's building a bridge, building a social care facility, opening a park, if any of them do damage to the community or have a negative impact on health and well-being of the community or others, or have a negative impact on the environment or biodiversity, because you're just going for a positive economic actually it's going to have a negative impact on the economy as well because you're going to have to spend money improving people's health and well-being dealing with the stresses you're creating to the humans or the habitat dealing with the impact you have on the environment. So actually you're not getting that economic gain that you think you are does that kind of make sense
0: do you use any kind of assessment or evaluation when you implement a nature-based solution
3: Yeah, we're starting to. So we've always kind of counted. So some of the work that we've done within Connecting Nature has understood that people don't know what they need to measure. So they're very good at counting things. But when it comes to impact assessment and monitoring, most folk do an evidence base or what they think is a a monitoring to apply for funding or to say, this is why we're going to do it. Then they ignore it for the one, two, three, four years, five years of the project. And then when The financing people come back and say, prove that you've done it. They create an evidence report that says, look, we've done that. It doesn't give you all the the information. So what we've done within Connecting Nature, which Glasgow's done with the University of Akarunia, is develop a set of indicators. So a core set of indicators for social cohesion, a core set of indicators for health and well-being economy particularly the green where there's huge gaps in the green economic data for environment for biodiversity what it says is these are the key ones now that fed into the eu impact assessment book but what we've done because we're thinking was still a pick and mix and people don't know what data they've got is created a tool called CoImpact that does that match. so it allows you to kind of pull up this app and say i want to do this nature-based solution And it takes you through, well, if you're going to do this nature-based solution, these are the things you might want to measure. What do you want it to deliver? So it looks at social cohesion. If you say on this nature-based solution or this action, I want to improve the community well-being, I want to bring people together. You tick those boxes, it takes you to health and well-being. And and you say, well, I want to make sure that everybody's health is okay, that the health of the plants is okay. Economic, I want to create new jobs, I want to create green jobs. It takes you through some environment stuff, it takes you through some biodiversity. Then when you click on the next page, it says, right, you've picked all of these. Here's a little icon that tells you what these measure, but we'll have a fact sheet later on. If you're happy with them, leave them ticked. If you're not, move on, If you untick some. Then when you move on, it doesn't just say that you finished. It says, well, if you tick that, that has an impact on that, so you might want to measure this. So it gives you some more. At the end of all of that process, and it does give you an option to pick governance, so do you want to do some surveys about how people feel, that lived experience, etc.? it then links you to an impact assessment report. Effectively says, we know it's difficult, you don't know where this is, but here is the data we know is available, here is the people who may well have it. So it might be within your council, it might be within the health board, it might be within government, or the academics might have it. This is how you collect it yourself if you need to create it, but this would be good evidence to collect and manage.
0: Should the impact on non-humans be measured as well? Because NBS basically focuses on people, on the societies and communities' needs.
2: Now, of course, that's essential. Uh, if you look at the IUCN global standards on nature-based solutions, one of the key criteria is that NBS must protect or enhance biodiversity and ecological integrity. So, we have a lot of indicators in in our handbook that refer to green space management, what is the condition of the green space, or specifically looking at biodiversity. So where we try to assess change in local biodiversity, how have we impacted the plants or animals or even the soil microbiota. When we think about nature-based solutions, what we're really thinking about is a provision of ecosystem services. So, in a way, it's very much focused on how we use the services provided by intact ecosystems. But in order to have ecosystem services provided, we have to ensure that we have good functioning ecosystems. So um, many, many indicators are really looking at ecosystem integrity.
0: You have already mentioned that the society could be involved in the assessment of MBS, school children, for example. Why do you think it's a good idea? To involve people.
2: It's very different to be told the nature-based solution in your yard, you know, the restoration of the parkland or the stream is delivering this benefit and quite another thing to be engaged in acquiring the information. So, for example, in, in the city of Tampere, we've restored an alluvial meadow and the primary function of of the alluvial meadow restoration is to reduce flooding. It provides a space for excess water to be stored, but it also improves the health of the stream that runs through the area. And so local school children have been involved in macroinvertebrate testing. So going in and collecting aquatic macroinvertebrates. So at the same time, we're, we're getting great information about the impact of this alluvial meadow restoration, but the children are learning about nature and appreciating nature and understanding how cool biodiversity is. You know, why do we want to have biodiverse life in our streams? So we're building knowledge and social capacity, which is a really key element of nature-based solutions, and make and also building that sense of ownership. You know, if you are involved in co-designing and co-implementing, and then you actually get to help collect the data about what impact did this MVS have? You're going to feel a much greater sense of ownership than if someone builds something and then says, here's your park. Adina? We start caring more about the things we get involved into.
1: So if we get involved into uh, collecting some sort of data about our nature-based solutions, our parks, about the types of species that we see there. If we also uh, share data on, for example, which parts of a, of a particular space we like more and we feel certain emotions in. Uh, Where do we relax when we go to a particular nature-based solutions? And where do we go to engage in physical activity, for example? Where do we meet with others and talk? What kinds of spaces are uh, conducive to that? These kinds of things allow us to get to know our neighborhood, to get to know our community much better. uh, And we start caring about the issues.
0: By listening to you, I'm wondering whether the assessment of MBS can help us to find our way back to a harmonic coexistence with nature
1: it can it can definitely lead us to understand where uh, we are missing it so first of all where we are missing that harmonic coexistence um it can help us to see the kinds of uh, potentially negative impacts we have had as we were already mentioning earlier on 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 nature On ecosystems, right? On ecosystem integrity, how ecosystems have become fragmented and how that impacts us actually directly. And it can also help us to start understanding the different, if you want, also from an egocentric perspective, the different beautiful benefits that this coexistence can actually have, right? When we think about, for example, even from my perspective as a psychologist, We know that exposure to nature is related to, for example, higher cognitive performance, higher creativity in children and adults. We know it relates to lower levels of autoimmune disease, to lower risk of cardiovascular disease. We know it relates to things like uh, reduction of physiological stress, which means that we are less likely to develop physical and mental illness in general. Higher happiness, uh, better community relationships. So, there are so many things that so many benefits that we start to see we derive from this positive coexistence. It starts to become the default position. And that's our hope also with the handbook that by documenting these benefits, we start seeing that there's no other reasonable position. That the position where we do not see nature as something we use and abuse, but we see ourselves as part of nature and we see this coexistence as something that needs to set a series of boundaries to what we do and how we conduct ourselves as societies
2: and as economies. And I think that it builds an appreciation when you have one NBS implemented and you start spending time there and become engaged in in collecting the data to understand the benefits. Maybe at first you don't even think about it, but you might get a survey, you know, a pop-up survey on your mobile phone asking you, how do you feel? Asking specific questions about, does this inspire you? How is your stress level? You know, just about your perception of the space that might get you thinking, you know, actually, wow, I feel a lot better than I did an hour ago. You're just spending time here in nature, but it, it will also inspire people to want more spaces like this. You now to, to really value, value that interaction with nature and being part of the natural world, not seeing themselves as so much apart from nature,
0: we hope. You were listening to Eclipse Podcast with Dr. Laura Wendling, environmental scientist, leader of the Nature-Based Solutions Research Team at the Technical Research Center of Finland, and Dr. Adina Dumitru, psychologist, senior researcher at the University of Akorunya, Spain, and Director of the Specialization Campus in Sustainability Research, and Gillian Dick, Spatial Planning Manager at Glasgow City Council. The handbook we were talking about, entitled Evaluating the Impact of Nature-Based Solutions, is downloadable from the website of the European Union. And you also find there a summary for policymakers and the appendix of methods. We make podcasts based on the best knowledge, collected by expert groups, including scientists and other specialists. The vision of Eclipse is to ensure a sustainable future in which decisions affecting biodiversity and ecosystem services are based on a trusted evidence. For more information on Eclipse, consult our website at eclipse.eu, where Eclipse is written with K, and follow us on social media. I'm Éva Bansági. Until the next episode. Stay tuned!